I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. If we show no signs of stopping, you can always give us a nudge. <laughs> I can do that. Okay. We're going to start with a little, little extract. If you feel that would be appropriate. It seems, it seems <coughs> the venue for it. I, I have no introduction to this book. I can't say what it's about. It's, it's about what happened to me for the first 20 years. Um, uh, one of the things that happened was me casting about desperately trying to find some form of identity and trying different things on. Um, some went better than others. Uh, my, my engagement with the uniform didn't go particularly well, so I thought I'd just like, so this is a very short chapter, so um, it's it just um, uh, basically how I got on in the boys' brigade. Um, chapter's called The Man in Uniform. The after-echo of national service still rang through the community, and many kids of my age were signed up for one of the semi-military options available. The Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme was for weird kids, Scouts was seen as too middle class and the sort of thing high school kid joined. The high school of Dundee is the town's one private school. I have private reasons for thinking ill of this middling institution, but it's long been held in more general contempt by the wider populace. Dundee folk hate folk getting above themselves. And uh, excuse me, there'll be a lot of this. I'm not used to reading prose. Prose goes all the way over to the other side of the page and, uh, <laughs> and I always forget to breathe, so I'm so sorry. Um, and in a way, the high school exists for no other, purpo no other purpose than to get above yourself, which you, you, you will have forgotten because I interrupted myself. <laughs> this will get better. My school motto, by contrast, was pretty much Sebam Patrem Suum, an obscure Latin joke for Dundonians there, um, which, which <laughs> translates as, um, uh, I knew his father, which is a standard Dundee put-down for anyone getting ideas. Um, <laughs> The school bizarrely boasts William Wallace, too, as a former pupil. You will recall that bit in Braveheart in which the blazered and satcheled Wallace, distinguishable from his fellow pupils at this point only by his woad, has a sense of national injustice ignited when he kicks his rugby ball over the railings only to see every passerby refuse to return it, a scene <laughs> frequently reenacted in his honour to this very day. Instead, I joined the boys' brigade, Next to Chimp Division, perhaps the most infamously useless of Her Majesty's military corps, and a rare sight at the front. I lasted three weeks. Mum bought my uniform from Alice McFarlane next door. It was too big, but I was too wide, so that was okay. Even better, her son Alan had achieved a very high rank. 
So it already came with a white lanyard and 40 badges sewn into it. I thought I looked magnificent and that the rib jumper made me look svelte. I'm not sure why mum encouraged me to turn up dripping in unearned ribbons and medals, but the royal family whom she admired had long set a precedent for this kind of thing. And I assumed she'd, uh, I suspect she assumed I'd get away with it when she saw, I'll start that sentence again. I suspect she assumed I'd get away with it when they saw what an astonishing young man I was. When I arrived at the North Halls at the bottom of St. Mary's Road to sign up, I was immediately taken into a side room where it was explained firmly but kindly that the badges in the lanyard had to be won, not merely acquired. The badges had to be removed, and they handed me a pair of scissors to cut the threads and unpick them from my uniform. They saw my crestfallen despair and gave me one badge by way of compensation, the one for needlework. <laughs> it, true story. It was my last badge. I left halfway through the first forced march. The plan was to set out from North Halls, head down Strathmartin and out into the country, walk through Bridgefoot and hang a left towards Octor House, where we'd be picked up on a bus. I was far too overweight, bored and unfit to complete this and made my excuses upon reaching the war memorial in Bridgefoot. Sir, I'm not sure if my parents explained, but I am asthmatic which was plenty fun enough. I waddled home alone while getting torn into the Tupperware box of tablet and tray bakes and the two cans of Fanta Mum had given me to keep my blood sugar up. At this point in time, I had a best friend for years, a nice kid called Alistair. I haven't mentioned him yet because our exploits were scrupulously unmemorable. Other than our shared distaste for adventure of any kind, I'm not sure why we selected each other as best friends. But everyone seemed to have one. And besides, the qualifications for bestie were then minimal, as our characters and interests were so sketchily formed. The one thing children do see and understand, however, is status, and that does most of the selecting for us. We were a fairly thin subgroup in schemey terms, something like upper third division church adjacent dweeb. So fate likely steered us together. I got it into my head that we mirrored our hobbies and interests, but like most reflectors, had failed to reflect that it only takes one mirror to do that. When I'd taken the Queen's shilling, Alistair had joined the Red Cross, probably in, a, in an attempt at symmetry breaking. We were 11 and about to enter high school, whose far larger social pool would provide us both with an easy excuse to go our different ways. But seeing me now clubless and un, ununiformed, he asked me to join him. The Red Cross involved a fair bit of oath-taking and symbolic square bashing, but was mainly focused on first aid. Badges were for really specific stuff like wound dressing and fracture splinting, they were also splendidly graphic, and an outsider would have, we'd be hard-pressed to say whether the more heavily decorated of our number had been honoured for treating the injuries or inflicting them. Every week presented us with new worst-case scenario, and it was really a kind of horror club. As these horrors had to be visually conjured, one could also gain a badge in simulation, i.e. the art of wound design, using only pink modelling clay and paints drawn from opposite ends of the spectrum. Slashes, burns, ruptures and fractures were conjured with horrible realism and indeed often looked far worse than the real thing. By the time I left, I could do you a plausible compound fracture or a facial wound that would have you rushing for the toilet bowl and I would have made a good hire for George Romero. We also had field exercises. First we'd, be, excuse me, first we'd be divided into an A and B team. Team B would be subjected to mass simulation, the full menu of contusions, compound fractures, stab wounds, gaping slashes, third-degree burns and internal bleeding, and drilled and feigned concussion and spleen rupture. We'd be driven in a bus to Rears Part and Brotty Ferry, a small, densely wooded square with a little hill in the middle where Team B would hide. Team A then had to locate them, diagnose them and treat them. 
Finding them was easy enough. The wood was littered with mangled bodies and the bushes buried under leaves halfway up trees. Indeed, at the start of every exercise, the temptation to shout theatrically, what in the name of the living fuck happened here, was almost unbearable. Had the question been posed, one might have swiftly concluded that a knife fight on a 747 carrying a platoon of dwarf soldiers <laughs> had resulted in a failed emergency landing into a forest of hyenas. But we were instructed to accept a scenario at face value as something very likely to come up, which, for which we should be well prepared. There was some brilliant overacting, as Team B had been briefed to scream and moan whenever inappropriately moved or treated. Entering into the spirit of it, I once said, a totally straight-faced, he's gone, Chief, we've lost him. <laughs> Accompanied by a grim shake of the head, but Mr Stewart wasn't having it. Arms were tunicated, recovery positions set, non-kissy CPR delivered and legs splinted. Little kids ran away screaming and dog walkers called the police. Wee Kenny Mollison, who marched with his arms... Wee Kenny Mollison, who marched with his arms and hands straight out like a tin soldier, once got left in the, in the rhododendrons with massive internal bleeding and a broken ankle, and we had to drive back and treat him for actual hypothermia. <laughs> I'll stop there. Um, but didn't get any better. Thank you. Um, well, it, I mean, there's so much. So much to ask Rose about. Rose is hard From to that read. alone. God, yeah, no. It just goes on and on. You got yourself into this. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, there's, there's lots of things I want to ask you, um, Don. I, I mean, not only, we've all heard that. There's, you know, so many questions. Um, but no, I'll, I'll start off. Um, there was a quote that jumped out um, from quite early in the book where you say that um, memories happen to someone else and that um, it would be unbearable if all this had happened to us. Um, so... So given that you're charged with being Don Patterson um, throughout this book and also in life, um, I just sort of wanted to start it off by firstly asking um, just how difficult it was to go back over some of the material from being a different person and all these different versions of yourself. How, how was it to sort of trawl through this archive of views? Uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. It was, sometimes it was fun, you know, and I tried to make it fun because I think if it wasn't fun, then it wouldn't be fun for anyone else. So, you know, if I, could, if I, if I couldn't kind of entertain myself in the retelling, uh, I just assumed that it wasn't worth, worth the telling. Um, but there is that weird sort of thing that happens to the, you know, sort of somewhere in the hippocampus to do with our, 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 our not even long-term memory, but sort of, a, you know, um, a day or so after something happens, the camera switches from first to third person, you know, and... Um, because I do think that otherwise things would be intolerable, you know, if you really believed all these these things that happened to you. Um, and initially, I'd, I'd you know been commissioned to write a very different book, which was just about music and just about sort of playing sort of uh, in the club band scene in Dundee and life as a musician and stuff like that. And it was tales in the road and tales from clubland uh, and stuff. Um, uh, and I should confess that I got the I got the commission on that basis, and I spent the money, and I bought a guitar, and I forgot about it. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I wrote a bit, you know, I sort, of, sort of published a wee bit, sort of, you know, from that part of my life. But uh, I lost interest in myself. So, um, and I think it was just waiting for the right planets to come into alignment before I could address the matter again. Um, so it wasn't really uh, until my father died that I had the kind of, you know, suddenly the perspective and the space to to go back in there. And to be honest, also, I, di I didn't have the mnemonic. Um, and my father died of dementia. And one of the interesting things is you'll know about dementia is the fact that music, because it involves so many different parts of the brain, uh, you know, um, is about the last thing to go and one's associations with music. So he was always able to remember what he'd listened to or what guitar he was playing. And I thought, that's a really good, 
you know, mnemonic system. Um, and I found that I could recover all the things that, that I'd wanted to forget <laughs> by, by remembering what I was listening to at the time. I mean, some of the things I was listening to were bad enough. I mean, it was just like <laughs> having to put on Osmond's Phase 3 again. It was tough. <laughs> like, so um, but I yeah, mean, that brought it all back. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll sort of come back in a second um, to, your, to your dad. It's, it's someone, um, something I'm hoping we, we might go into a bit more and, and, um, and you might read an extract at, at some point. But, but yeah, you, you said that, um, that he was, that his dying was kind of what opened the book back up again or, or sort of allowed you to write the book that you did write. But um, I, th- I mean, there's a really interesting moment, I think, in, in the book where you, you call him um, a great accompanist. And I thought sort of formally almost he's, he's an accompanist in the book in some ways, oh. you know, that he sort of, he's, he's not always at the front, but yeah. he's making it all kind of yeah. tick along, I think. And, and I, I wondered if that was sort of partly a sort of conscious, formal decision, you know, that he's, he's so much a sort of shadow, you know, figure uh, throughout the, the, the narrative. And, and also, just as you said about him sort of being able to recall music, um, his his last words should enter the pantheon. I think um, of great last words. Yeah, there wasn't. It wasn't. Sadly, it wasn't a deathbed speech. But it was his last coherent sentence, uh, which was Alexa, play Lyle Lovett, um, <laughs> which was uh, true. Um, I think his last words were shut up to my mother. Actually, you know, but I mean, it's far less uh, poignant. Yeah, but, you know, sure. Um, uh, although they were said. Because she was singing, and he, he didn't like her singing, and he always joked about it. So uh, you know, so there was warmth in that. Shut up. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, um, it wasn't a conscious decision. I, I'm really pleased to hear you say that because I mean that was his role. He was one of the most sort of you know modest men, uh, admirably modest men that I've ever encountered. Beautiful man, um, a, and very self-sacrificing, and you know, and worked two jobs through most of my childhood to keep the you know um, the family going. And uh, uh, and this kind of, you know, so I'm glad that came through, but I, I wish I could take credit for it being a kind of structural device. It was just the case, yeah, you know, yeah. that he was always there working, you know, just mm. like, uh, you know, and uh, he worked as a process artist by day. So he was like, um, that's a very dubious aggrandizement for, for someone who colours in cartoons for a living. So he coloured in Desperate Dan, filled in Desperate Dan's jumper, you know, that was his job, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and uh, at night he played country music uh, in clubs, uh, sometimes very far, far afield, and always drove home to his own bed, even if he got there for you know sort of at four in the morning just to sleep for three hours, you know. So uh, yeah, it was some guy, yeah. And of course, because he was so quiet and so modest, you just and he, because he requested you to take him for granted, you did, you know, which is <laughs> terrible, you know. Yeah. And I often think that's a good sign of being a great parent is the fact you get totally taken for granted. You know, actually, I'm not criterion. I'm a great pair. <laughs> <laughs> One of the greats. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, just just on that, obviously, um, you know, there's there's the the, the personal um, dynamic and everything, but also his 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 career as a musician. That's obviously you know that was obviously formative and gave you a sense of what it was to be a, a sort of working. Yeah. I know there's there's an element in the book where you talk about that kind of wariness of you know being an artist or the, the word, but but that sort of thing, being a working musician, being on the road, you know, being on stage and all that. That was that was obviously quite formative as well. Um, his role in that sense, you know, watching him do the do the business from from, from yeah, from a very early age. I mean, he started uh, Dundee Folk Club, you know. So so I mean, I got early exposure. So I mean, because you know the folk revival in the sixties was incredible. I mean, the, the the kind of constellation of talent at that time, you know, when you had the incredible string band and the Watersons, you know. And I was trying to figure out the other day when was the first time I heard John Martin. You're familiar with John Martin, I'm sure many of you. Looking at you, you look like you are. Um, 
Martin fans always have a competition about the first time that they heard John Martin, you know, and I heard them in uh, October of 1964. <laughs> Eat my smoke. Um, <laughs> and I was in a pram, you know, and... Uh, he was and, in a pram. He, he was nearly in a pram, and that was definitely in a pram. He was 16, and he'd been dragged along by a Scottish folk singer called Hamish Imlock. Um, and his name then was Ian McGeechy, and he was still a Glaswegian. Um, so I would have heard him then because I was a, I was just placed in the back of the uh, you know the, the the club. So I grew up listening to my dad and listening to my dad's you know, sort of higher these good musicians. And eventually, when I was 14, went out in the road with my dad and worked with him. Yeah. And um, another thing to do with that sort of sense of, of being on stage and um, just a sort of side, side, sidebar. Um, but but you say sort of towards the end of the book, um, there's there's a bit in there where you're sort of coming back from a particularly dark period. You might talk about that later on. But um, but you talk about the dopamine hit of tiny fame, which is a lovely um, a lovely phrase, something we can all aspire to, um, I think. But but that sense of, of sort of in a weird way, getting on stage seemed to be one of the places where you were able to to not be agoraphobic and it was sort of quite an extreme version of, of breaking that that pattern I, you know just I wondered if you sort of wanted to talk a little bit about that that process as well sort of your own sense of you know finding the stage and getting that kind of as a way of being you know I don't brought. know if I do I'm quite embarrassed by it when now that I think about it you know the fact I mean it seems pathetic doesn't it you know I mean, I mean the fact that you know sort of that that, that minimal glamour would, would would somehow kind of shock you yourself enough to you know sort of give you the confidence to face the world um but I mean, the, the the episode to which you're referring was a was a, a schizophrenic breakdown um, in my teens, but I was hospitalised for about four months, uh, and coming coming out of that, I was really badly clinically agoraphobic. Uh, but my dad dragged me out, uh, you know, so pretending to you know have me help him set up, you know, at the country and western clubs that he played, you know, and eventually dragged me on stage, and I found that weirdly when I was up there, I was okay. Because you have to build this sort of psychic palisade between you and the audience anyway, in order to, to, to you know to manufacture the presumption to do this. Because this ain't you, otherwise you'd run screaming through the door. You know, <laughs> it's just like this can't be you. So you had to invent some bullshit, you know, in order to do this. Um, uh, you know, and and that gave me the idea. I think I've constructed identity at a time when I didn't really have any ego. You know, yeah. I, I, I I didn't have any center to hold to at the time. So uh, I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but yeah, that's um, that's what was yeah. going on. It was really um, intuitively, uh, you know, uh, beautifully psychologically smart of him to do that. Yeah, very, yeah. very my dad move. Yeah, yeah. yeah. quietly, but yeah. yeah. Um, but talking about um, the music, um, you, you say at one point um, you talk a little bit about determinism as opposed to, to fatalism, but you said there was a sort of helpless inevitability about you sort of having the, the life you had, but about picking up the guitar in in that specific case, but. That wasn't necessarily your first instrument, I believe. That sounds like a cue for a song, deck. Don, um, have you ever played <laughs> another instrument? <laughs> um, uh, no, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, you know that thing, uh, it, that's, it's really it's something that terrible that boys have to go through especially, I know girls through a version of the same thing, but with guys it's, it's, uh, just, it's often quite uncomfortably violent, it's the rejection of your father, and, uh, you know, sort of, um, uh, in that stupid kind of Oedipal way, you know, uh, so I didn't want to play the same instrument. Yeah. So, uh, and I tried a lot of other things before the guitar because they weren't what he played and it was so shit in all of them. Um, and if I can, I can find a bit, I'll, I might tell you about my engagement with the piano and the trombone. Um, You've got retuning patter you can use in this. Menu. Sorry? You've got retuning guitar patter. You retuning patter, that yeah, comes yeah. up, yeah. yeah. No, but you like, can do that now. Yeah. When you're looking for the I, I wish I could remember it, yeah. 
I remember writing this passage, you know. That's the, <laughs> um, when, when did all that kick off? No, that's like before then. I'm so sorry, folks. I, I, I have many pages folded down, uh, so one of them, I assume, corresponds to this, uh, this episode. But at this rate, I'm going to have to resort to the, uh, you know, to the actual um, contents page, is what, it, what it's called in literature. Um, oh, yeah, right, here we go. Sorry, folks. Jeez. Um, it's early days with this book yet. Thanks for your patience. It's just it's, it's amateur showtime, yeah. Um, I'll read from this until you stare at me. And, uh, okay. Until yeah, yeah. they glaze over. Um, your time is up. I should say a word at this point on my very limited exposure to formal music tuition. It was pretty much inevitable that my mother would start me on piano lessons, the, clear, the clearest aspirant signifier of the day. This had nothing to do with music and everything to do with levelling up one's status. Piano lessons neatly implied several important things. Your son was a genius, you could afford to send him to piano lessons, and you owned a piano. <laughs> These lessons will have been hard for my folks to afford, but were almost certainly offset by the near sexual pleasure mum will have gained from rehearsing and delivering the line, yes, Donald has his piano lesson this evening. <laughs> Forced out as a child, Mum played piano herself very nicely, even though she didn't think of herself as particularly musical and could sight read well. She bought the sheet music for Come Back to Sorrento and played it over and over again. She'd, she'd been besotted with Mario Lanza in the 50s, and this had been her howl of mourning after his early death from overeating. Mari, I'm going to read this out. Mario was the one cause of the one fight my mother and father ever had. My jealous dad had called him a poof, and Mum, who had just watched an Elizabeth Taylor film, slapped him experimentally, rather less experimentally, rather less experimentally. My dad threw her across the room, to use the phrase by which she enjoys recounting the story. That is, he manoeuvred her very carefully in front of the sofa and laid her down gently but firmly. They were both mortified. My brother was probably conceived in the spot. <laughs> I was around eight years old when I was packed off to Mrs. Drysdale. She lived in Slimer Street and was your identical, kindly old piano teacher, and I can recall nothing of these lessons because I was so very, very bored. She would, oh, she would balance a penny in the back of your hand and if you played the scale without it falling off, you could keep it. There's a wee anecdote. Are we done? Even writing this up, I've had to crawl back inside the soul-compacting black hole that survives in lieu of an actual memory. <laughs> One day, during my half hour of enforced daily practice, wishing I was dead or unborn or in a coma, I was poking my way through Bonnie Bobby Shafto with one finger in her crappy upright, which was all ghost keys and shuffling hammers and seasick discord. Mum wandered in. She was shocked to find me staring right through her. We agreed that I should not continue in such pain, that it was hard for her to give up in my brilliant future, and I hated disappointing her. Um, there, I'll skip that bit. The record player back then was a four-gear affair, and setting it to the wrong speed was a common error. An occasional amusement, if you wanted to hear how Mario Lanza might sound with a left hemisphere stroke, or come back to Sorrento performed by George Formby. <laughs> Uh, in addition to Dad's Lonnie Donegan and Hank Williams 45s and 78s and his slowly growing library of decent folk and country albums, we had a few spoken word records, most memorably among them, Sparky's Magic Piano. Any flicker of recognition there from anybody? Sparky's Magic Piano blighted the childhood of every kid unlucky enough to hear it, much like the African culling song accidentally collated in poems and rhymes for around the world in Chuck Palahniuk's horrible lullaby. I am convinced that Sparky also run at the creepily otherworldly and least used speed of 16 RPM. The story is simple and heavily padded out with improving classical performances of Chopin and Liszt. Little Sparky falls asleep at the keys halfway through what I remember as my own grade zero party piece, the Jolly Farmer, but can't have been, 
And Dream says, piano is alive and conscious and can play itself like a pianola. The piano talks through the filters of a sonovox, a kind of early vocoder, which sounds like a human voice vibrating the piano strings sympathetically. As I too often fell asleep at the keys, the story seems straightforwardly cautionary. The actual composition for speaking piano in the record is utterly brilliant, a harmonically enhanced mixture of emotional tease, faked innocence and horrible cynicism and foreshadowing. I'll play anything you ask me to play for now. Even better, the piano, who's effectively grooming a little giggling coquette, sit down on my stool, put your fingers on my keys, can play Sparky, who quickly makes a name for himself in the performing circuit. He inevitably gets too big for his boots in the end, his hubris seems to have been coming back out for an encore, and the piano finally shuts up shop at Carnegie Hall, to which Sparky has found a non-traditional route, and indeed the very opposite of practice. I thought it was hilarious when I wrote that anyway, but it's just, it's just one of these jokes that's lost in the culture now, but anyway, you know, some bugger out there will get it. Um, the piano announces his dereliction with the immortal, horribly cheery and gloating little up and down scale, your time is up, I will no longer play for you, which is the voice that still plays in my head even now, any time a luck runs out. Sparky keeps playing, but the result is awful, clanning, two-fisted cacophony, and he's shamed utterly in the world stage. Sparky, why can't you play? Why? yells my mother. I mean, his mother. Inconsolably. <laughs> then she wakes him up, and he gets milk and cookies, and he resolves to be a good boy, and to practice hard, and to make everyone legitimately proud. In my head, though, a parallel story continues, with Sparky laughed off the stage, having shat his pants in front of Harry S. Truman, returning home to disgrace and the taunts of his classmates, retaking fourth grade three, time, three times before dropping out to smoke meth and sell his arse on Rat Alley, then freezing to death alone in a dumpster at 19 on his birthday. <laughs> anyway, he just ran with that. The lesson it taught me was that my worst nightmare, the one with the frozen gollywog and the balloon man song, wasn't. This was. A big thank you to all the adults involved. Um, I'll mention very quickly my um, uh, 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 trombone lessons. Um, I was briefly a trombonist after being a terrible trumpet player. Um, uh, and I had a, a teacher called Mr. Brown. Uh, and you know when you stop something dead and never do it again? It doesn't happen. Usually it's a slow fade or there's kind of some kind of elasticated, kind of awful last period. Some things just stop, like trombones. Um, <laughs> sensing my growing frustration with the thing, uh, the trombone is the only orchestral instrument that can be played perfectly in tune, goes the old saw, always failing to add, but never is. <laughs> Mr. Brown tried moving me to the bass trombone. For a while this went slightly better as the parts were easy and could be covered by an averagely competent lighthouse. To my mother's incontinent delight, I was also scheduled for some TV exposure. Baldragon Brass Band was selected to present, represent Dundee schools on an episode of Songs of Praise. I made a half-second appearance, wincing one-eyed at a bum note from the horns. However, this triumph was a blip on a sharp decline. My final public performance was an end-of-term rendition of the great trombone showcase those magnificent men and their flying machines. This contains one of the few programmatically justified full-blown bone slides in the repertoire on the line up, down, flying around, living the loop and defying the ground. After up and down, you would perform a ballsy slide up, 
and then down, although the temptation to slide down and then up was almost overwhelming. But rehearsals went well and provided a kind of bonding bit of theatre between Mr Brown and me, and he could appear to be conducting me in my controlled skids. The day came and the assembly hall was packed. We honked our way through the floral dance and eye level or the theme from Van der Volk, and both passed without incident. We'd gamely embarked on those magnificent men. The moment came. Mr Brown indicated me violently, like a mad wizard, casting an upspell with his baton. I panicked and immediately shanked into the big glissando, lipped into the wrong octave and raspberried it. I tried to compensate immediately with my slide on down. Now, some technical information. These days, one can reach the lowest notes of the bass trombone with the induction of an extra coil of tubing engaged via a discrete valve. But back then, we were purists. In those days, the bass trombone had an additional seventh position, one only within the reach of basketball players, statistically few of whom are also brass specialists. But mortals could also reach the bottom note by flinging the side out to a full arms extension and then additionally flinging out a little ornamentally tooled handle which would afford you the extra four inches you needed for your deep contrapart. Anyway, all appalled by my up note, I determined to really make up for it on the descent. I made a gratifyingly growly downward slide, like a fat motorboat speeding past your ear, and then flung the handle out uh, to end on a big alpine blart. Only I failed to catch it. And the trombone slide shot off the end, whistled past the ear of the French horn in front of me, and clattered to the floor six feet away. This all took place over about two seconds, which lasted about an hour, hence the detail. <laughs> to be clear, then, the effect was basically up, yodeled, fart, down, blah, shite, crash. The ground lay before me, undefied and refusing to swallow me up. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Brown didn't even shake his head at me. When I looked at him, his eyes were closed. <laughs> Terrible company. If only we had the video of that to stick on. But um, you said there about um, breaking it dead and getting out quick. But uh, something else that you, you, I remember you said that you detached yourself like gum from was your, um, your, your dalliance with, uh, with evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Um, you, you said there's a great line in that about um, faith not really being part of it. You just proceeded straight to insanity um, because doubt was not a factor. That, yeah, faith, faith is for wimps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go straight just, to certainty yeah. and madness. I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I just wondered if you wanted to um, to share with the ladies and gentlemen um, your your brief um, evangelical phase. Uh, do I? Um, do you want to hear this? Uh, what happened? What happened was um, I was uh, I'm from a kicky family, so which is to say, my grandfather. He's poor as dirt because he was a minister. It was, it was, it was a, a kind of a, a horrible thing for my mum to experience, but um, she lost her mum very young, so he was a single parent for quite a long time. Uh, and in Scotland, the ministry, especially if you're in a sect called the United Free Church of Scotland, which is a, a sect of a sect, um, uh, didn't bring in a lot of money. So, um, so they have this big house of which they can afford to heat precisely one room. Um, uh, but it, it was a, you know, it was a church-going family on my mother's side. My father was very much an atheist, um, um, and I think, that, yeah, to cut a long story short, I think when I was a teenager, um, for reasons that have to do with my mom's loss of her own mom and the fact that I had, I should have had another brother between me and Stevie, uh, and the baby died on my birthday. Um, which was uh, didn't pan out too well long term and uh, neurotically um, uh, for reasons I'm sure you can uh, extrapolate. Um, uh, 
uh, I was very clean, keen all my life and still am to please my mother at some level, you know, sort of. Um, uh, so I think joining the church in my teens was a way of pleasing her. But weirdly, there was another part of the contract to sign, which was I was a teenager, therefore I had to present a worry to my mother and father. You know, <laughs> so so how do you do that? Well, you do it by going to extremities. So uh, you know, so I think I tried to find as an, an extreme a form of evangelical Christianity as I could find, and did the whole foaming at the mouth, talking in tongues, and you know, healing the sick, you know, prophesying the end of the world, you name it. I was up for it. <laughs> you were quite an active, yeah, you were quite an active participant, weren't you? Yeah. You were going out winning souls. And uh, winning souls, not doing a lot of aftercare, I confess, you know. <laughs> uh, I, had a great, I, I had a good light yeah. in Hellfire. I would identify the weakness of, you know, sort of, uh, you know, of the uh, pre-saved, you know. Uh, and, I would, and I would exaggerate the extent to which it was going to be uh, so much worse for them in hell. I would exaggerate hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that was my gig. But yeah. you got you got out. That was you're not still doing this. No, I'm always comfortable in the church. I mean, I just I mean, I, I, I'm happy sitting at the back of the church, and and the uh, I like the Episcopalians. Uh, Episcopalians are really tolerant of atheists. Not totally atheists, like you know, but you know, but uh, no, no more, no. And there was um, one other so unrelatedly, but one other thing I did want to touch on because I know time is um, otherwise going to get away from us. Um, obviously, as as everyone's heard, and, and as as is clear. Um, there's a lot of a lot of humour and a lot of wit throughout the book, and you deal with you know obviously a lot of the time quite serious things, you know, very wittily. Um, but one thing that doesn't, I mean, even though again handled with humour and, and and everything, um, something that seems particularly serious and and angry making um, is to do with the sort of treatment of, of of poor people of the working class throughout. I mean, when you're growing up, but also um, there are sidebars about you know about that as well and about you sort of. You talk very funnily about sugar addiction and things, but that becomes something more serious. I wondered if, if maybe you either wanted to read that or if you just wanted to talk a bit about that. Um, sure. Um, yeah, maybe uh, yeah, I'm just uh, no, paying no attention at the time whatsoever. Oh, goodness me. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot about sugar in it, uh, yeah. you know, and a lot about um, uh, uh, the sugar addiction of the poor, uh, you know, which I think is manufactured and I think it's an analgesic for the, for, for, for the underclass. Because um, that's how it functions, uh, and it keeps them docile, and it keeps them fat, uh, and it, and um, and uh, um, diabetes costs the NHS a lot. So you'd think there'd be incentive, you know, to you know to uh, to tax sugar, but it wouldn't cost the NHS nearly as much as longevity. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think there's really no incentive, you know, to you know to to stop poor, poor folk being addicted to sugar. You know. Um, and some people wonder if I'm serious, but I'm deadly serious about this. It's a terrible thing. My mother's wrestled all her life with the awful sugar addiction that she passed on to me. I mean, so everything has to be hidden in our house, you know. So, I mean, quite seriously, because I'll turn the place upside down. If I know there's like a, a box of Bendix, I'm the leader of my wife here. Um, uh, if I know there's a box of Bendix in the house, I will tear the house apart like the fucking FBI, <laughs> you know, um, trying to find the thing. So it's just like, a, so that constellation of addiction, you know, I've mm. inherited from her, you know. There is a, a you know, sort of, a, 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 I'll give you a short description yeah. of something that could only exist in Scotland, which is a, a, a delicacy called Scottish tablet. Have you had the tablet yeah. before? Oh, yes. <laughs> no, to, you know. Is it safe to let you talk about this? Is it safe to what? To let you talk about this. Uh, no, no, it's, it's um, <laughs> no, it'll, uh, I mean, it's two desserts. We can always pivot into an intervention. Um, so again, I'll have to find it, but, uh, you know, I'll... Uh... I might have it written. Oh, thanks, man. Um, 
104. God, love you. I saw this book got a review in the tablet. <laughs> I haven't seen Is that the, the review. Trade magazine but... the it's, a, it's a trade magazine for trade bakes. Um, uh, apparently. But uh, I haven't seen it, so I hope they mentioned tablet, otherwise. <laughs> Talk about a lost opportunity, anyway. Um, tray bakes. Do you know tray bakes? Do you have those in England? Like, I didn't live here for 20 years. Anyway. Uh, otherwise, treats come in the form of the historical Scottish delivery system of the tray bake. I talk about, you know, sort of sugar and all its daily forms, staple forms of sugar that we ate every day. Um, but, but this is about treats. Um, the chocolate crispy. Made of cornflakes, melted chocolate and horse glue was a jagged confection that's painful to eat as a pine cone. Millionaire shortbread. You have that? In our gilded imagined futures, what Caribbean cruise, what Learjet trip, what cocktail at the Ivy would be complete without a slab of shortbread covered in toffee and cooking chocolate? <laughs> I stuffed my face with it and felt like 007. The name's Bonf. James Bonf. <laughs> There was, something, there was something lumpy called tiffin, which appeared to be made of reconstituted tray bakes and the rare peppermint slice, which was regarded as a health food because it tasted like toothpaste. But the doyen, the dauphin, the deas pater of tray bakes was of, was, of course, Scottish tablet, which essentially dispensed with all the other ingredients and got straight down to business. The feeling of tablet is as hard to describe as masturbation. Can you remember how it felt to walk before you could walk? No, you can't, so stop. This is a callback to a really funny earlier joke. There's <laughs> just no context here, but anyway. Um, nor can you watch me eat it, for I'm going to eat it like a fat Labrador in a corner, angrily and alone. Ta <laughs> tablet is a sort of crystalline fudge made from sugar, condensed milk, more milk, butter, more sugar. That might be all, actually. It's an alchemical procedure, not a recipe. All is stirring, adding, pausing timing, condensing, cooling, and waiting. The result is a semi-hard square of fawn heaven that tastes like what it is, 40 pints of milk squashed into a block of gold. It is milky and buttery and crumbly and both hard and soft. It is sweeter than anything you've tasted in your life. And electricity rushes up the side of your face as your dopamine surges in anticipation of the next bite and your inhibitory neurons throw down their rifles, tear off their uniforms and join the lack of resistance. <laughs> tablet puts all thoughts to rest bar those of Tablet. To say that you cannot stop eating it would imply that you'd contemplated trying. <laughs> my Manhattanite ex pointed out that the way my mother sold in package Tablet in a cut square taped up and wrapped in parcel paper and placed individually in a Ziploc sandwich bag was identical to the way you bought a quarter of brown in the South Bronx. <laughs> My mum basically owned the corner where they sold the good shit. One day she made an excess batch for the church sale of work. Word, word got out to the kids in the estate. They started to turn up at the door, 10p in hand, and the discreet exchange would be made. Within an hour, a queue had formed and snaked back down the garden path to the bus stop, the kids getting taller as you went down the line, which ended in several shifty adults and a dinner break, keeping their eyes firmly on their shoes. Uh, this goes on for ages, this bit, you know, and, and with such love. Um, anyway, sugar, but yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, but yeah, just, I mean, I'm, I'm aware that people um, who aren't me will want to ask questions, so I, I'll, I'll wrap this up in a second. Um, I just, yeah, I think what we haven't done, or what I haven't done, um, is, is talk about the parameters of the book. So this takes you up till you're 21, I believe, and you're about to leave. 20, yeah. Yeah, and you're about to leave for, uh, leave for, the, for the bright lights of London. <laughs> Um, so, will there be volume two, the uh, the poetry? 
Disgrace. Disgrace. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Is we'll it see how this went. If people like this and they buy it, you know, and it's just like you know, and uh, and it makes sense, you know. If anyone shows any interest, you know, that then you know, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, one would probably need minimal encouragement. The, the worry is the legalities, you know. Um, I, I might have to wait for a lot of people to die. It might be easier to do it as science fiction, you know. Um, you know, there's all that to consider. I mean, I was already working with composites there, you know. Yeah, because there's lots of names have been changed to. I think all the names yeah. have been changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, all uh, you know, uh, all identifying material has been removed. <laughs> How many lawyers were involved? <laughs> yeah, fingerprints have been burnt off. <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, well, I think I should probably um, bow out now and let other people have a go at grilling you given i've been quite prosecutorial enough um so did people how are we going to do that is there a sort of mic yeah um david david's got a mic so if people have questions for don um Excuse hopefully people who aren't in the book and want to um say that the lawyers haven't been thorough enough um then yeah this is this is your turn i shall be guided by you Declan. don um in the lrb um website so i get messages from them. This is the first time we've come to one of these and they came because it mentioned amongst other things that we're going to talk about football. So football <laughs> in Dundee, Don. Football. Um, uh, there's a whole chapter on, uh, you know, sort of uh, my, my first girlfriend um, who was a mathematician, but, uh, you know, um, from the same estate um, uh, or who was studying maths, but she was a massive Dundee United fan. Uh, and she enlisted uh, me into that. But unfortunately, I came at the most unrepresentative time in the history of Dundee United. And I thought they were always like this. It was the mid-80s, and they were, uh, it was the early 80s, and they were unbelievable and contributed half the Scotland team. Um, do you know the most unbelievable statistic in world uh, football is Dundee United's record against Barcelona in competitive match play? 4-0 Dundee United. You <laughs> beat them four times, you know. Um, and I saw two of those, you know, and it was amazing. And um, uh, and we were cheated at a place in the in, uh, in the European Cup final. Uh, we played Roma away, having beaten them at home, uh, uh, and the referee gave just enough, you know, sort of penalties, you know, to keep his family alive, and actually punched <laughs> the air at the final whistle, you know. And there was this investigation by UEFA sort of afterwards, you know, into the into the incident, but um, you know. Anyway, so that was my first acquaintance with the fact that life is not fair, you know, and just and people are corrupt. But um, uh, but yeah, suddenly it all fell away. Um, and I, I write a lot about one guy that incarnates the problem of being in a very poor town where naturally uh, Celtic and Rangers were just going to take over, um, which was a guy called Ralph Milne, who's only remembered now as the worst signing that Manchester United ever made. It was like a joke, but but it was because Ferguson could remember him with Dundee United. But by the time he got to Man U, he was a fat drunk. And it was awful, you know, it was so sad. And he, and he sort of incarnated, you know, the problem with, with, with that poor town. 
um, so I'll write about him. But the other interesting thing about Dundee that I, that I mentioned is we had, the, as far as I'm aware, the only kind of, we had a terrible gang called Dundee Utility Thugs. Um, they were called Utility because there was a guy called John Holt that played for Dundee United that was called a Utility player, but no one knew what Utility meant, so they just assumed it meant thug because he was like a hatchet man, you know. Um, so, you, so, But the uh, membership of Dundee Utility Thugs was conditional in support of both Dundee and Dundee, Dundee United. Um, such was their, you know, commitment just to pure violence. You know, you had to, you know, so had to go to both games. It's really quite moving when you think about it. You know, it's, it's some, um, so I talk about them. Uh, but yeah, but the the checkbooks of Glasgow quickly reasserted the natural order. So and it's just like and Scot Scottish football is not worth following. I mean, it's just like why would you condemn your child, you know, to nothing but you know sort of you know third or fourth place for the rest of their lives? It's a joke. I would. I'm one of these that would take Celtic and Rangers and and dump them in Sakhalin, you know, and adjacent villages, you know, and just like and sort it out over there, you know, or Ireland. Do you go back to Dundee, Dun? Is it, is, is that, do, you, do you do you live near Dundee? Do you go back to Dundee? What's your relationship? I do live in Carrigmore now. Um, you know, sort of. You know, I was down south for you know decades, but it's um. But and then I went back north fairly permanently about two thousand. Um, uh, and it's my second time in Carrigmore, and I think we're staying there now. So do you, I don't know if you know Carrigmore. It's just like it's it's north of Dundee, about twenty miles north of Dundee, and it's at the foot of the Cairngorms. Uh, and it's the home of J.M. Barry, and it's a wee town built of red sandstone. So it's very heavily Peter Pan branded town. <laughs> it's also the home of Bon Scott from ACDC. <laughs> it's true. And we've got a statue of Bon Scott playing the bagpipes in the town, and we have an annual festival called Bon Fest, um, where a lot of ancient Australian bikers come over and, um, you know, are very well behaved, actually. <laughs> yeah, but it's. Um, yeah, so I see a lot of Dundee, yeah. And, uh, you know, it comes in for a bit of stick there because I talk a lot about council corruption, you know, and just like, and, and, the, and the, the terrible things that were visited on Dundee. Um, you know, and, and things like, you know, um, uh, I, I think, I, you know, I, yeah, I think I say at one point, closed for refurbishment was just a way of giving the fire brigade three days' notice. <laughs> um, it, it's just that the place was, it looked like a wreck for years, but, but to its credit, I think there's some genuine regeneration going on in the city just now, so I'm quite proud of it. I've always been proud of it, but it looks like something you'd be proud of now. It was on Succession. I don't know if you saw hmm. Succession. It looked all right. Some of those shots were at Perth. But, you know. <laughs> just moving on from that last question, you know, can you move back? Um, sorry, I beg, your, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. Um, sorry. Um, just moving on from the last question, um, you say you moved back to Scotland about 20 years ago, which I think we, we got, well, devolution happened in 1999. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of basically, I know it's a big question, but like, a, you know, the Scottish nation since then? Uh, on what's I on? Just in Scotland in general, you know, since over the last twenty years since you've been back. Um, lordy, um, you know, I should come out as a vile separatist. I, I don't hide it, you know. Uh, you know, sort of, um, and I say at the start of the book just to kick it into touch, you know, because you know, sort of, uh, 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 those of us in the SNP are often accused of, of being anti-English, and I'm so pro-English, and it's my favourite country next to Scotland in the world, and I say so at the start, um, and I've got many reasons for saying so. Um, but but I'm personally pro-independence, but I'm a bit exasperated with uh, the the fact that we've not really run out of steam so much as it has been demonstrated to us that we're not in a voluntary union, 
Um, <laughs> and it's just, you know, so I, I, I think we're a bit stuck for the next move, you know. So it's an interesting time, uh, you know, but I could see uh, worryingly the SNP fracturing as a result of that. Um, uh, there's a lot of debate about what we should do, in the, you know, in the party, and it's just like, and, and, and some think that Nicola's Napoleon, and others think she's maybe, you know, sort of, uh, she's run out of ideas, you know. I don't actually have an opinion. I'm not sure what we do at this point. I do know that the, the, the union is not voluntary, which is a miserable reflection. Um, so I, I don't know how, how we, would, we would currently find the mechanism to bring about a second referendum, which would likely go yes. I don't blame England for not wanting to let us go. Um, uh, all we hate is Westminster. Mm -hmm. yeah, we love England. But, uh, but yeah, there's a much longer answer. Sorry. So it's just, uh, one more, I think. Yep. Um, I noticed the reference to um, Vladimir Nabokov. And to I wanted what, to Vladimir Nabokov, you mentioned speak memory. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to ask you are you a reliable narrator? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would say yes. You know, I would say yes. Um, it's funny, isn't it? It's just, you know, because, I mean, I, I, when it immediately gets reacquainted with the old cliche, neuroscientific cliche, which is memory is a memory of a memory, you know? So, so you're not really remembering. You're remembering things that you've remembered. And the trouble, as I discovered, with trying to write what is probably more an, an autobiography than a memoir, is that's not good enough, you know? And, and miserably, I had, to, um, I, I had to find out whether those memories, light, I, I could corroborate them with the memories of others, you know. In other words, I had to do a bit of research, you know, and it turns out they didn't, so. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So I just went for the best story, you know, so, so, so that seemed to be the, you know, the, the best way to proceed. I mean, I think there is that thing that one learns from poetry, which is the facts are secondary to the emotional truth, you know, and it's just like in your, your sentimental allegiance to the facts can often get in the way of the emotional truth, so. There was a bit of heads and tails on it, but mostly it, 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 it's what happened, it, it just with changed names, you know. But I would say that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got a final bit you want to read? Oh, sorry? What? Have you got a final bit you want to read? What's Have that? you got a final little extract you want to read? There was a lady had her hand I was there, so sorry. I was just like, if you've got, I could answer yeah. that question. Mm. Sorry, read a very <laughs> short one. Yeah. Uh, I guess just back to the writing process. Did you like plan it, or did, as you started writing, did memories that you hadn't been planning to remember <laughs> come into it, or how? How? Yeah, what was the actual writing of it like? Oh, it was it was messy. I mean, I, you know, I, did I mention it? it was just like it was commissioned sort of ages ago, you know, and it's just like and uh, you know and um, but. Uh, and again, it, prose is different, it turns out, you know, and again, it's, it's, uh, you have to commit every day to things like word count, and that was wholly alien to me, you know. Um, so, um, do you know, blissfully, I can't remember. <laughs> you know, I've got some kind of postpartum amnesia, you know. And, you know, and I think that's why, uh, that's God's way of getting you to write another book. You know, because I think if I could remember, I might not, you know. Um, uh, but I did it pretty, pretty like in a blitz over about 18 months, is the truth. I had a bit of it, you know, from about 10, 12 years ago, and then I blitzed it, you know, sort of uh, over about 18 months. And that, that probably is about my natural, you know, way of 
you know, only having written one, I don't, I don't know if that's my method. You know what I mean? So I'm just, I'm just discovering that. You know, but uh, I think blitz it. You know, um, and then forget about it. <laughs> Move on. Anyway. The point. It's not, oh, first, it's not your first book of prose, is it? Oh, you mean the big thing? The big thing. <laughs> yeah. The big blue book of misery. <laughs> no, no, I think he heard. <laughs> so the question was, how does it compare with writing the, the big process, blue book? The writing process, oh no, the, 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 I don't know if you know. It's just I wrote this awful thing. It's like it's a huge blue book, um, uh, and it t it just took forever, uh, and it was accreted. And I thought about that book over a period of twenty years, you know, uh, you know, and arrived at something like a sort of treatise of, you know, sort of a poetics, you know, that that I could sort of stand behind for a while. Um, yeah, but I, th I disagree with half of it now, obviously. Um, but no, that was that was a that was a work of just just kind of you know uh, you know um, nautilus-like accretion. Yeah. Uh, whereas the, this had to be written in order to sort of have any energy in it, you know. The, the poem deliberately has no energy in it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like it to be chiseled in granite. You know, it's, 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 the, the prose style is not. You know, here I got another one. You thought that was fine. It's not. It's the opposite of that. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. No, no. Any, <laughs> <laughs> uh, should I read it? Yeah, I think, yeah. Let's, let's it, so. um, bring it on home. Do you got any ideas, mate? Um, I think um, you could do a bit of. Christian praying, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, 182, yeah, round, round yeah. about. Yeah. 182. 182. Right. Glad somebody's read this. <laughs> um, uh, it's just a wee excerpt from the, uh, the uh, evangelical years. Um, uh, we treated witnessing and prayer as a sport and vied to outdo each other in length, style and self-abasement. I recall one recent convert, a wee old guy on the 12th floor of the Adler Maltese, whom we bombarded almost daily with home visits. He must have felt like these poor refugee kids inoculated into tea bags by 33 competing private charities as soon as, as, soon as they make it over the border. After we'd eaten all these jammy dodgers, we'd leave him propped in front of crossroads and retire to his spare room to pray, to pray about any old rubbish as long as it was for longer than Luke had prayed at the weekend of Raymond the day before. Less fun, since it involved an encounter with actual reality, we were, we were called out to Mrs. Gunn, sorry, Ma Gunn. These were high prestige visits and got you a double stamp on your card. Janie Gunn was a blind evangelist who'd run a well-known mission in the city centre in the 50s and 60s. She'd been bedbound for many years. Her flat lay up some unlit spiral stairs of a close in, in the high street. We'd be greeted at the door by a daughter who wore what looked to be a dress made out of old dish towels. The dark flat, excuse me, the dark flat immediately choked you with its soul. Can I read prose? The dark flat immediately choked you. I'll, I'll pretend it's a poem. The dark flat immediately choked you with its sour, awful human smell. Everywhere howled of piss. Every surface was filthy. Your shoe soles stuck to and peeled off the liner as you walked. This wasn't just poverty, but folk who couldn't look after themselves. Ma lay in a deep, greasy socket in the centre of her bed. I doubt you'd she'd seen a change of sheets in years. We prayed, we bore witness, we read our favourite verses, and we sang the choruses we all knew. We'd heard a rumour that Ma had no legs either, but one day we saw them stir beneath the piled blankets to her mild disappointment. 
Ma was tiny, blind and toothless, but still sharp and knew us all by name. We prayed and sang with her, and she reminisced about her mission days while they distractedly widened a hole in the damp plaster of the wall behind me with my fingernails foreshadowing there. It comes up later. Um, <laughs> shut up. Uh, beside the, <laughs> you know these voices in your head, you wish you could just switch off. Um, beside the bed was a bookcase with her long, unused, huge Braille Bible volumes. Her daughter wanted to sell them. I assumed her only source of income came from the local winos she noisily entertained in the back of the flat. I can still hear that rising ma, 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 wah through the wall that had one evening concluded, go tell it on the mountain. If they didn't hear that in the next valley, there was no saving them. Ma seemed oblivious to the nature of her daughter's calling, but then a gift for obliviousness seemed the one thing God had blessed her with. Janie Gunn's devotional life had been impeccable. She'd been rewarded with poverty, squalor, blindness and hunger. That she still sang, that she never fell into despair, was a tribute to her spirit and her spirit alone. Somewhere under the self-delighted glow of her charity, a little doubt was seeding. I buried it by pressing my bus fare home into her daughter's hand on the way out, which made me feel even holier. I then had to borrow my bus fare home. <laughs> anyway, I'll leave out the prayer for now. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.